Malcolm Holmline in a moment. Uh, we are we have the weekly update this week. Baruch Hashem. Next week, Malcolm will be traveling. Uh, there will be no weekly update. And then in terms of um, August, both pre and after uh, Rosh Chodesh Elul, we'll let everybody know uh, what to expect. As the summer schedule, as you know, is always a bit more erratic than the schedule the rest of the year. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish organizations. He joins us on Friday morning, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be back with you again. Appreciate that. Good to see you in Israel. Yeah, thank God. I don't take it lightly, by the way, because uh, the statistics on both sides of the world bear it out that most, I mean, overwhelmingly, the majority of people simply are not getting into Israel. And we'll talk about that in a moment because there's a... Uh, growing concern that this trend is simply going to continue uh but yes a um it, it was great seeing you in the holy land and I, I hope that we can continue as we did that week and as we did this week with our friends at ncsy to bridge the gap between israel and the diaspora as people rightfully so are desperate to get in and israel i believe rightfully so is desperate to keep people out so we we are all pining the foreigners are pining to get in and the government of israel is trying their best to keep everybody out pretty amazing do you do you have any i mean I could tell you every rumor that I've heard on this side of the world and on that side of the world. Do you have any definitive information about the timetable of Israel reopening to foreigners? I have definitive information that they do not know at this point when Israel will open up and whether, in fact, uh, travel for Sukkot will be possible for smaller children especially, for those who are not inoculated, for um, people generally, we just don't know. And I asked everybody from the prime minister to the minister of health to others about it. And as you know, they keep putting off the, the date when non-group visitors would be able to come. And it's, uh, the expectation is that the Delta virus will get worse in the coming period as it is around the world. And Israel's taking the biggest precautions, I think, or as big as any country has to uh, avoid the spread, which is the responsibility of government to, to do. But I know the frustration. I can't say how many phone calls I get about it. And, you know, when there's an emergency case, it's one thing. But for regular tourism right now, I don't, I just don't see uh, a clear answer. I heard a, uh, a couple of, first of all, there are many who I spoke to who said, don't even expect this by the end of 2021. Like, prepare yourself, because anyone who's thinking, even if they're not there for Sukkot, that they'll be able to travel more freely in October or November, don't fool yourself. So there's that position. Uh, but in addition to that, someone said to me that the Israeli government is considering, and of course this is only a rumor, September the 15th is the deadline, because by then, every foreigner will have canceled their Sukkot reservation, <laughs> and then they, uh, they can open things up. A little cynical approach, but um, I, no, I don't that? think that's the, the husband that they're actually, uh, that's, that's how they're making decision. I think they're really trying to work off the science and the spread and, the, you know, especially because younger people are get, who are not inoculated are vulnerable to this, even though, the, thank God, it, it doesn't they don't come out of serious and the fatality rate is still uh, hovers at uh, close to zero, but the, um, the expectations, I can tell you, on the part of many people that I spoke to was that who are in the know um, 
was that there will be an increase. And it's it's true everywhere. We see countries uh, closing Australia, Melbourne, Sydney closed down again, and they, they act with a superabundance of caution. They've had much less percentage than inoculated. But countries uh, keep getting put on the uh, Cyprus was put on the list. Russia's on the list. Other places are on the red list. Uh, where travel from Israel, for instance, is, is not allowed. By the way, as of Wednesday, two days ago, uh, gatherings of two, three hundred people, weddings, etc., in Israel will, will require PCR tests for all the guests. I don't know what they're doing with concerts and major events, you know, in the thousands. I mean, there's no way to PCR test everybody to allow them in. Is proof of vaccination going to be enough, or is this also a rule that's changing every day in Israel? Uh, I don't know. All the rules seem to change pretty regularly. Yeah, and also on the groups, uh, is it accurate to say that a group, you know, affiliated with, I guess we'd say, a major reputable organization, can still get in? The reason I'm asking is because I'm now watching, and I'm sure you've heard this, uh, that those that many groups that were scheduled to, in fact, be in Israel October, November, December are now that just canceling or postponing that trip, and I'm wondering if that's because of a regulation that makes it tougher now. On the groups, or they just simply don't want to go through all the paperwork and the lachats, the pressure uh, that comes along with trying to get a group into Israel? It's probably all, but also it's the uncertainty. And when you have to, at a certain point, put down the money, and many times much of it is not refundable for the hotels, for the catering, for all the other things that you buses, uh, they have to make a decision. And with being unsure about what, what the status is, they opt not to do it. We see even with the conventions that are scheduled here in the United States for next January on February are are not being held because they don't want to make the financial commitment that's necessary and then be stuck with a, a huge bill and no conference. That includes APAC 2022, which will be virtu- yes, virtual. APAC, it will not take place in person. Yeah, it'll be virtual again. Uh, what you, you hear this story about the oral vaccine in Israel? That is actually they've developed a a, a COVID yeah. oral vaccine, and that's they're working on it. And uh, and now there are rumors going around that they may recommend a third vaccine for those who've had two Pfizer shots in order to give them a boost. Right. Uh, and um, and well, you remember Netanyahu said this right away in the beginning that you may need a booster shot after six months, eight months, and um, even if someone had two shots. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's funny. I remember 18 months ago discussing with you the uncertainty of all of this and how God shut the world with this incredible situation that I still can't get over. And 18 months later, you know, outside of a little bit more freedom and a, and a bit less fear, there's not much difference. Maybe there's not enough tshuva done. He, he gave us uh, time and said, okay, you know, think about all of this and what you're doing and what's important. Well, what's the limit, Malcolm? I mean, it, it, it can only be a maximum of how long. <laughs> Because you know you know how Jewish history works. At some point, God becomes very merciful and just stops the thing. Right. Well, I think God's <laughs> merciful in any event, but he, but it's it's um, uh, you know this is it's it's such a serious matter. So you can't be flippant about. Hey, I'm not being flippant. The, no, not you. No, no. I'm saying about the implications and about uh, the doctors about what the timing is because you can't find two doctors who agree on right, exactly that's, that's the course. For- that's that so true. We're going to pursue. That is so true, and that may be the, the, the crux of the entire matter. Uh, what was it like being at the inauguration of the new president of Israel? It, it was very moving. It was a series of events, an outdoor one in that blazing sun, which was quite a test of our commitment. And um, <laughs> many foreign ambassadors. I sat with the Egyptian and Moroccan ambassadors wow. who were there. That's cool. And the, um, there were 
couple more who came. Uh, the um, and of course the non-Arab ambassadors were there. And there were special things for them, uh, but it was it was very moving. It was moving to see them put on the yarmulke several times, both Rivlin and Herzog, in quoting Tanakh and Tzvilot, um, and to see the Knesset sitting quietly. And, and no protests for for the duration of the uh, swearing in, which is highly unusual. <laughs> they, I had been there just a, a day before. They made it through the whole session. They made it through the whole session. Yeah, that, that Knesset. But it was, uh, you know, I've known Herzog for many, many, many years, and worked with him on many issues. I think he he will be a very um, active, like Rivlin was, uh, president. Uh, he's already expressed himself on, on a lot of the issues, but coming from um, you know the Jewish agency where he was used to it and as leader of the Labor Party, um, I think he, he will be uh, heard from on a lot of the critical issues. Is there an odds-on favorite for the next director of the Jewish agency? There are there the process is going going. I spoke to people who are involved in it. I don't think that they have, they have not picked someone. There are names that General Eliezer Stern and others whose names have been put forward. You think Danny Danone's a real candidate for it? Um, I'm not sure that he's a he's a prime candidate. Uh, Danny Dayan's name had been put forward, but as you know, he has been nominated now to be the new chairman of the of the Yad Vashem, yeah, the former a, Consul General of New York. I mean, and, and I, I, how do I put this diplomatically? Um, I don't know if that's the if as the as the as, in terms of the future of the Jewish people, and there are a lot of very qualified people, seriously, to lead Yad Vashem. I'm not minimizing the importance of the organization and and that role, but boy, do we need we need him more more pointed toward the future of the state of Israel than the past. And I, well, that's not the Yad Vashem is his orientation is towards future education for commitment. It plays a very important role. Foreign dignitaries come there. I think it's a very expansive role. Wouldn't he be better? Wouldn't it be better for us if he was the head of the Jewish agency? I don't know whether it was really in the cards. So perhaps he saw that he wasn't going to get uh, it, and therefore true. That's true. opted for what he could. I hear that. What was it like meeting with the new prime minister of Israel? And I asked that with the background that you know, obviously, I had this opportunity to be there a couple of times this month. There are a lot of people who who really think he's a lightweight, and I'm wondering what your impressions were. I'm sure he comes in about 185. Uh, but, uh, with the yarmulke or without the yarmulke? <laughs> yeah, that has white sounds. The, the, uh, look, I've known him for a very long time and um, and through his various incarnations. And, and uh, I met with him twice in the last few weeks and, and for long periods. And we had in, really in-depth discussions about issues, issues here, issues there. And he is very open he is very responsive to the things you say. He, he takes notes. He, he uh, talks about follow-up on some of the things that we, we raised um, and um, raised very confidential issues with uh, in our discussion. So, um, look, I think that, that what you helped them get to, into office was the opposition to be, be united to the various factions. I think right now getting the budget passed is uniting them. What will happen after the budget is really critical, and if they can, in fact, get a pass, because if they don't, then the government will automatically fall, uh, and I'm sure the opposition will do everything they can to, to make sure it doesn't happen, but it, 
they, they may, probably will have the votes and they will make it flexible enough to accommodate a lot of the parties so that they'll all have a vested interest in, in passing it. So that's the big hurdle that they face. Uh, the issue of the American consulate in Jerusalem uh, has been put off by the administration because they want to give them a chance to you know, find their sea legs and to get the budget passed and not to have a contentious or potentially divisive uh, issue. Uh, I know when I met with the acting American ambassador in Jerusalem, we met at the consulate, uh, not at the uh, embassy uh, building. Uh, I don't know that that has any particular significance, but the the um, that issue is, a, is a, a delicate one, of course, the violence from Gaza, the situation in Lebanon, very unstable. Iran remains the major issue, and he discussed it, as did when I met with Netanyahu. He's still singularly focused on that. Um, so there are there are abundance of issues. The good news is that Israel was admitted as an observer to the OEU Organization of African Unity. Uh, I attended a meeting, I don't think it was, the, it was several years ago, where Israelis were excluded, and they wanted to exclude us because they were Yarmulkes and they thought we were Israelis. Um, the the um, change is, is quite remarkable that it, it all went through. So, you know, Israel, on one hand, things are, are going well. The opening of the UAE's diplomatic representation, which uh, uh, President Herzog, I think, attended, and the... Um, uh, exchanges and a visit by Lapid to the UAE, the foreign minister of Israel. I mean, there are just so many things happening and so many... Um, well, we're, just con- we're, we're just concerned that he gets it, you know, especially when it comes to Iran. And oh, he gets it. He gets it. I, th- I don't think that that's an issue about, uh, for Bennett, about understanding. Remember, he was minister of defense for a short while. He, I mean, he's been exposed uh, for many years in the Knesset. Um, what he's able to put get his cabinet to agree on is more of a question than whether he gets it. Yeah, I hear that. I think the impression also, those who complain that they're they're not quite confident in his leadership always cite the six mandates that he has. And I don't know if he's going to get past that in Israeli society, that you're prime minister with such a small representation in the Knesset. And I don't know, it may have been better for him to, you know, table his prime ministership for the second half of this arrangement, frankly. Uh, you know, just as the... Because uh, people continue to question whether you could really be a leader with such a small representation. Yeah, but in this system, though, as you know, allows it, encourages uh, minority parties to have an outsized voice. And uh, he, he, you know, most of the parties there don't have much more. And as long as Lapid, which is the largest party, um, uh, who has the largest party there, is backing it, and because he gets the transition. Um, is it we'll pos- see what, what happens. Two years is, is a lifetime in Israeli politics. Is it possible, based on what you just described, that Lapid's really running the country and that Bennett has to defer to him on issues like that because of the size of his party? I don't think he defers to him. I think that they seem to cooperate very well. They talk about the issues. Uh, we haven't yet had one that divided them that came to, to, to that point. And I think that, as I said, they'll avoid those kind of issues until certainly until after the budget is, is formed. Then they may have other moves. For instance, uh, they're passing the law that will allow um, members of Likud, currently could to break away and join them as a faction, which would mean, you know, let's say four or five Likud members 
joined the, the coalition government, um, there, and then Rom could be could be dropped or whatever would certainly diminish the leverage. And maybe at some point the religious parties would come in. Though I don't see it with Lieberman's behavior right now that that's likely. Uh, it, you know, there are a lot of options that are open, and this is only a few weeks into the into the government. Yeah, they're functioning. I mean, I met with a number of ministers. Everybody is at work. Um, I think that a lot has to be done in the ministries themselves. There's been a, a period of, I would say, laxity, and, and everywhere you go, people complain about the government agencies and their lack of responsiveness, the lack of activity. I see in the foreign ministry a, a real change in, in the atmosphere, at least. We'll see whether there's an a change in, in the actual doings. You know, it's funny. I think this is the first time that I experienced non-religious people saying to me how upset they are about the way religious people are now being treated by the government of Israel. Now, I, I, that, it's likely it's happened before, I get it, but it was just a, it was a different vibe. You know, usually the, the contentious um, a topic of non-religious versus religious, you know, is really split, <laughs> split, split well right down the middle. In this case, it seemed there was a lot of sympathy from the average Israeli who was not religious for the way that the, uh, that the religious were being treated by the current government. But by elements of the government, I certainly think that uh, Lieberman, uh, you know, when you go too far, right. there is generally an assess, a sense, you know, that people want to have more religious freedom, as they call it, or uh, options or whatever, and, and they keep attacking the rabbinate, even on the issue of Kashrut supervision now, it's it's uh, become a very divisive issue. Um but I think overall, people, we saw it after Mayrom when thousands of people lined up in Tel Aviv spontaneously right. to give blood for the for Haredim who were hurt or, or uh, injured at the, in, in that event. And you see it in other occasions, the sympathy they feel for um, members of the Haredi community. Maybe Shtisel uh, helped or something. <laughs> well, you're making, you're, making, you're making such an important point. And, and for those who, uh, I mean, I can't get into it right this moment, but... If you look back, folks, at at, at pre-state of Israel, uh, Palestine, and and the uh, and and Israel when it was a young country, at the relationship between religious and non-religious, you would be impressed with the way uh, people are uh, are dealing with each other these days. It was a whole lot worse then, and anybody who is old enough to remember, I think, would agree with me. Although that generation is uh, is quickly fading, but you have to take my word for it. For those of us who uh, who grew up hearing about what it was like. Uh, to be religious in Israel and or Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Well, everyone thinks that the topic of the week is a Netflix series, which, by the way, we're completely ignoring right now until I decide otherwise. Uh, but the real topic of the week has been ice cream. Malcolm, who thought that ice cream would be the topic of the week when we're talking about the state of Israel? Uh, well, Glida has always been very popular there. And uh, so it's been a topic of discussion for a long time, and it's improved immensely over the years. You're the expert, huh? <laughs> I, so I can claim some experience in that regard. Uh, but, uh, look, I think this, uh, first of all, I'm very encouraged by the response. Uh, we have we got on this right away, and we reached out to people. Uh, and whether in the corporate world, whether in the Jewish organizational world, 
different degrees of commitment and involvement. Uh, people are responding to this in, in remarkable ways. We already had uh, Governor Santos wrote a letter. Uh, Governor Cuomo referred it to the Attorney General to review in terms of his executive order. Many other governors, I think at least five or six, have already moved on this. And the point is that the that Unilever will will be harmed because they they will not be able to invest funds. That's the laws, the anti-BDS laws in right. 35 states. Right. And the uh, and the importance of the message is a deterrent for others as a preventative that that if they were able to get away with this, Ben and Jerry, and, and you know, it's a limited move and all the things that people say, it's, uh, you know, it's a factory in Israel that's producing and selling in, in the, the, what, what do they call occupied Palestinian territories, right. which were not occupied Palestinian territories uh, usually. And um, they, they sold a lot of it. And the employees, who many employees who are Arabs who are going to lose their jobs, getting paid much more than they would make in the PA, uh, you know, that's a, an untold story. Story about how many Arabs work at a normal job. I'm not talking about the day laborers, but who have regular, steady work and get paid equivalent with uh, their Jewish counterparts or Israeli counterparts. Um, but but I think, and I have to say that uh, um, the reaction is stronger than I expected, more sustained. That there will be a very strong message to corporate America: don't mess with this. That the had had Unilever, if it just had gone quietly because everybody dismisses Ben and Jerry's as this wacko company, whose chairman is is uh, the record of her comments are really disturbing and outrageous. In fact, against Israel, a long history of it. Uh, the the you know there are people who are demanding removing Ashkacha. They should not focus on Ashkacha. But they have a contract. You can't just break contracts that easily. But you can stop buying it. You can see what. Um, various supermarkets have done to diminish their their presence and in, in, in visibility in the stores and people not buying it. Now, this has nothing to do with buying it. In Israel, they should still buy it because right. the company is a Jewish company and, and they're the good guys. Here, I think the message has to be very strong on the corporate level with Unilever, the parent company. Who, when they took over it, they allowed this independent board. That independent board has got to get a strong message, and the shareholders and Unilever say, we want change, we want this out. This is a discriminatory message. This is not freedom of speech. This is not any of those things. This is pure discrimination. And the uh, and BDS, as we know, is, uh, in fact, at its core anti-Semitic because it, it doesn't focus on a policy. It focuses on Israel's right to exist, Israel's right to defend itself, Israel's right as a nation, and the Jews' uh, right to have a nation. This is, uh, so it's, a, I think, very important that people uh, not purchase the stuff and that they make their voices heard, and then we press elected officials at every level to to take appropriate action. Hey, Bernie's from Vermont. Maybe we can get him to make an anti-Ben and Jerry statement. Yeah, no, it explains a lot that they're both from Vermont. I, I, I have to agree with you, and I can't emphasize it enough. I'm so glad you pointed it out, and I'm so glad it was really the, the, the focus of your words, that the, the response was amazing. And, you know, for those of us who always complain about the lack of response when it comes to anti-Israel exactly right. yeah, anti rhetoric and action, it's amazing to see the way people have responded. Social media has been just blazing, blazing. The, the videos of the supermarkets clearing their shelves is fantastic. 
And uh, look, you know, when they were an independent company, Ben and Jerry, I'm sure they loved infusing their politics into their business. But now if they're part of Unilever, I mean, you know, it's welcome to the big leagues, boys. And all they care about, frankly, is making money and growing their product, meaning Unilever. So well, they, they're sustaining the culture, as they refer to it. But, you know, look, we see we see the uh, expansion of BDS, and now the campuses are coming back to life in September. Right. We're going to see a lot more. Certainly the rise of anti-Semitic incidents is one of the things they did in, in Israel was to speak at the uh, Global Forum on Anti-Semitism, where people from all over the world, Jews and Jews and people who are doing amazing things on the issue, really highly scientific, sophisticated approach the internet to other things, but the bottom line is that everybody knows that this thing is growing, it's a cancer that's metastasizing, that it's spreading, and, and that we have to do a lot more. You know, the Church of England issued an apology for anti-Semitism from 800 years ago. We can't wait that long. We need to see people coming forward, and when a Ben and Jerry's does what it does, they have to be heard. You so British Labour Party uh, eliminated four groups within it who had uh, identified with or expressed uh, anti-Semitic or anti-Israel uh, points of view, and because of their sensitivity, because they knew they paid a price in the last election, they, that, that's the bottom line message, that if we're indifferent and if we're quiet, then our enemies win. Yeah. If we speak out, we'll find we have a lot of allies. And the saddest part of all this, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming both Ben and Jerry are Jewish. Yes, Ben and Jerry are Jewish. Yeah, so that's the saddest part, of course, about all of this, but... What can we say? Speaking of sad, sad situation in Iran, a water shortage and the people protesting. How did this all develop? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, especially this time of year and in that area of the world, there could be water shortages. But anything unique about this episode? Yes, there's a lot. And if uh, you remember, I raised this issue and talked about the internal crises in Iran over the last couple of months. This is something that's developed economic problems, the drought. Uh, I spoke about maybe a year ago more when we got the first reports about how bad it was and that whole areas of people are moving out of because they, they don't have any water. And now they, they got their fifth wave of uh, COVID wow. pandemic. And it, you know, many people have died. And then you have a shortage of medicines and, and water. And it is not because of sanctions, which is it's, it's a total lie that American sanctions somehow uh, stop the medicines, quite the opposite. Um, and they, they are developing, quote, their own uh, inoculation. But I saw in Khamenei showed uh, getting the inoculation and encouraging people to take the Iranian one. You could see that the bottle was a Pfizer bottle. And, uh, so there, there have been large demonstrations in, um, especially in Khuzestan, which is, uh, an ethnic Arab population, the Hwaz, um, many, uh, people, um, shown on, on television there that they're thirsty. And this is, uh, this is not going to go away. And I hope that the United States will be properly supportive of the, of the people on, on this uh, in, in this time when we have large demonstrations by truck drivers, the energy sector, others, as we had before, and we abandoned them in the past. It's really imperative. You see how much more aggressive they are that the Iranians try to kidnap a reporter in, in, in New York City and uh, take her back to uh, Iran. We know that they're, and I'm not talking about the nuclear program, which is uh, also critical. But they are taking some more uh, aggressive uh, 
steps at illegally exporting the oil. They built a new oil terminal, which bypasses then the Straits of Hormuz, which if they decide to close to everybody else's shipping, they won't have the problem. There are many things that are going on. There are activities in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, certainly Yemen. They're eyeing of what happens when America withdraws from Afghanistan. There's been a close connection, as you know, many of the terrorists found safe haven in, in Iran. So Iran is up to its continuing process of no good. And um, uh, the election yielded the result that we all anticipated with Raisi, who is, uh, I would just say, to just degree of hard line, extreme hard line that differentiates him from Rouhani. And they said they wouldn't negotiate till he gets into office, which is um, next week. Uh, we'll see whether the talks uh, go. But in the meantime, Iran is just uh, closing all the gaps. They are enriching way beyond the limit that they should. They are building new facilities, and the efforts to set them back are very important, but they're not a, a, a cure. So the you know they're they're using the more advanced centrifuges, which means that they can enrich four or five times. And even the Europeans agree that at the that they're supposed to be kept at least a year from being able to you know fashion a bomb with the enriched uranium. That they're now two or three months away if they decide to break out. You know, it's interesting. I I'm going with your with you how you started this with the COVID numbers. I mean, Iran is one of the hot spots of the world. I Has mean, been. They, 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 and they never told the truth about the numbers. Many more people died. There are mass graves for, for people who died. There's 3,000 dead in the last two weeks. Pardon me? There's 3,000 dead in the last they, two weeks. There's no country that comes right. close to that. Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't realize what's going on there. Um, and, and a word about uh, what's going on on the northern border, uh, Lebanon and Israel. First of all, so again, Lebanon, not that they ever did, but they're again officially in a situation where there's no governmental leadership, right? Whoever the right. prime minister was is no longer. And there was military action on the northern border. Explain that, what happened this week. Yes, there have been several uh, incidents uh, ongoing. There were attempts to fly a, uh, a drone across. There were two missiles launched across the border. Israel struck back and saying, as they have all along, that the government of Lebanon will be held accountable because they're in charge and, and the uh, uh, Hezbollah is part of it, although we don't believe these were Hezbollah. We probably think it was another group, a smaller group, that launched those rockets. Right. Israel struck at a very critical place in uh, a warehouse in, in Syria, but they fly over Lebanon, and it's a, it, it was near Aleppo, uh, and they continue to, to take steps when they know of, of these um, large caches of arms that are being stored uh, to... To, um, to to eliminate it because Israel cannot allow and will not allow Iran to pose a threat on its borders. We know that the militias are more active, and the government of Syria, it seems, is more dis- disassociating itself in some respects more from Iran than before. And we've talked, I've talked about the tensions that existed between them. Uh, the Russians also are always wary of of Iran, right. but when they served the purpose, when both were supporting the keeping the government intact, that was and, and Assad in position, that was you know what united them. So the situation in Syria is tense, but Lebanon is near economic collapse. There's no food. People are having big demonstrations demanding food. Yeah. If you 
remember I reported weeks ago that, that they set up, well, set up their own supermarkets, and unless you had a card from them, you couldn't go in to buy, and they would then control the shipment of food um, in and out. And, and therefore, if you wanted to eat, you, you associated or pledged fealty to Hezbollah. It's one of the old tactics uh, of, of how you take control of a company. Um, I mean, unfortunately, we have no time left. I, I should have uh, included in this uh, in this um, a segment, but we'll do it either two or three weeks from now when you rejoin us, the whole issue of U.S. leaving Afghanistan. But one question, did those um, uh, translators and those who had supported the U.S. efforts, did they ever get U.S. citizenship in the end to escape from the Taliban, or that's still a, a big question mark? It's still a question. Um, some did. Uh, others very bitter, and it's an issue that Congress has been debating about how to handle Terrible. that. Terrible. U.S. looks awful, I think. If we don't protect them or find a place, they don't have to bring them yeah. to the United States. We can bring them. They can go to other places where they can find safe haven, uh, not Iran. Uh, that, right. um, you know, the, uh, the United States has an obligation to them, and I know that many members of Congress have, have, uh, have spoken about it. Yeah, well, let's hope there's progress there because they certainly deserve to have refuge, they and their families. Uh, Malcolm, I thank you. We'll speak either in two or three weeks. We'll let the audience know. Have a wonderful Shabbos Nachamu, and uh, and we'll speak again soon. Have a great Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us uh, Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, here at JM in the AM.